Good morning. It is good to be here with you today. I appreciate your prayers. While I was traveling and in class this past week, as most of you know, I went to New Orleans this past week for a doctoral seminar and uh, lived it up. In, I mean, sorry, had a had a good time studying and in class, in class all day long in New Orleans. I did get to eat some good food. I, I will say that. Uh, some great restaurants and Got to visit with Jacob Powers and his wife, Larissa. I don't know if you guys know that Jacob plays for the New Orleans Symphony Orchestra. And so they're living down in New Orleans, so I got to eat dinner with them and, and uh, got to eat in a restaurant that Guy Fieri was at for di- drivers, dive-ins, and di- dive, dr- diners, drive-ins, and dives. That's like the most tongue-twisty TV show name I've ever heard. But got to eat in a restaurant he, that he featured in that, so it was, it was some good food. But it was a difficult class, and I just want to tell you that this class of the, of the six seminars I have done now, and that's my last seminar, praise the Lord, um, still have a lot of work to do, but it's my last seminar, and uh, of all of them, this was the hardest. And it was, just, it, was, it was all about philosophy and worldview, and I had to read stuff that was like philosophy, uh, you know, Ph.D. level type stuff. And, uh, and it was really hard. And, and at times as I was reading and preparing for this class, it made me question my intelligence. I mean, it really did. But I was encouraged when we came to the last day of class. And I learned that one of my fellow classmates, who, who I also had observed over the course of the week, he struggled with some of this stuff too. He had just as hard a time with the readings as well. And I learned on the last day that he is a legitimate, actual rocket scientist. You know, people say this isn't rocket science. He agreed. This was not rocket science. It was harder. But this guy really used to work for NASA and, and helped to design rockets and space shuttle parts. And, and he was there. You know, one of those, he was one of those guys you see on the movies when they say, are we go for a launch? He was one of those guys that had to say, go for launch. Uh, there at Cape Canaveral. It's pretty cool. We all wanted his autograph after we learned that. But, uh, but you know, rocket engineering... And the philosophical analysis of worldviews don't use the same parts of the brain. You know, those are different kinds of smarts, I guess, because each requires its own way of thinking, its own body of information, its own language. You have to learn different words and vocabulary for both of those different areas of study. And as I thought about that, it made me think about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You know, we think that just because someone is smart that they're wise. And that isn't always the case, is it? Nor is it true that just because someone's not maybe as well-educated as others, they're, they're foolish. That's not true either. In fact, my papa was one of the wisest men I know, and he doesn't have anything over an eighth-grade uh, education. You know, I've heard it said that knowledge has no value unless it's put into practice. And that that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the ability to take knowledge and put it into practice to make good use of it. Or as the great philosopher Jimi Hendrix said, knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. And I think there's some truth to that. But I think, I like what Martin Luther King Jr. said about wisdom. He said, science investigates, religion interprets. Science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is self-control. And so there are a lot of ideas about what wisdom is and what wisdom isn't and where it comes from and how you use it. But there's no better place to go to understand wisdom than the wisest book ever written, and that is the Word of God. 
And there's no one more famous in the Bible for his wisdom than King Solomon. And in fact, we know that the stories of Solomon's wisdom, that he was so wise that people came from far and wide just to hear his wisdom. People would come from all over the world. They would come with him with questions, wanting him to unlock the mysteries of life. They would bring him gifts and pay him homage. But where did Solomon's wisdom come from? He didn't learn it from books, nor was it from life experiences. We know the old adage that wisdom comes with age, right? Well, that's not always true. I know some pretty young people that are wise and some pretty old people that aren't. So let's read the story about the source of Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3. And we're just going to read through the whole story, 15 verses, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of walk through it and look at it. 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh king of Egypt and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Notice that in this story, it makes mention neither of Solomon's intelligence nor his mind. Because wisdom is not a matter of the head, it's a matter of the heart. And so really the sermon title is a bit deceptive. I mean, it's true that God crowned Solomon with wisdom. Wisdom was was given to Solomon by God. It was bestowed upon him by the Lord but not on his head, but in his heart. Wisdom is a matter of the heart. And so this morning as we think about wisdom, 
I want us to look at the heart and see what we can learn from Solomon's heart. First, we see the desires of Solomon's heart. The desires of his heart. The first few verses of this story tell us a lot about what Solomon's heart wanted. For in verse 1, we see that Solomon's heart wanted peace. Solomon was not a warrior king like his father David had been. Solomon reigned during Israel's golden age of peace and prosperity. While David was a soldier, Solomon was a scholar. Solomon was more interested in constructing buildings than fighting battles. David liked to use a warrior's approach in his relationship with other nations, but Solomon used the diplomat's approach. In fact, he made lots of alliances with other nations, as he does Egypt here in the first verse. And oftentimes those alliances involved him marrying the daughter of the king of that country, which leads to a whole world of trouble for him down the road, but that's for another sermon. Solomon's name even comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Actually, in Hebrew, it's not pronounced Solomon. It's pronounced Shlomo. Now, just think about the verb. Does that sound like a wise man? Shlomo, right? So that's why we say Solomon. Old Shlomo there. Anyway. Just shows you the power of language, right? It's just great. So, so he wanted peace. Secondly, he wanted power and prosperity. Now, it was an age of peace. So Solomon's job wasn't so much conquering other kingdoms and defending Israel's borders. Solomon's job was consolidating power. And so he brought the capital, Jerusalem, to the height of greatness through constructing all of these buildings. He built palaces for himself and all of his officials. He, throughout the country, he built these stables for these horses of his. And he built these giant fortified storage cities to store the, the, the grain and the produce and the wealth because it was a peaceful and prosperous time for Israel. And, of course, his most famous building project was the construction of the first temple in Jerusalem. And third, Solomon's heart wanted a personal walk with the Lord that was like his father David's. Solomon wanted to show his love for the Lord, it says there uh, in verse 3, by obeying his commands, by walking in the Lord's statutes as David had done. You know, when we, when we want to look at David's relationship with God, and obviously David, of all the kings of Israel, had the strongest relationship with God. We look to the Psalms, right? I mean, David wrote poetry. He wrote these songs and these prayers because he had a, a poet's heart. And while Solomon did write some poetry, like the Song of Solomon, he was more prolific in writing Proverbs. We think of the book of Proverbs. We think of the book of Ecclesiastes. We know Solomon and his relationship with God through the wisdom writings that he gave us. But even those, when you read Proverbs, it may not be quite as beautiful and poetic and, and easy to adapt to our prayers as the Psalms were, but the book of Proverbs can give you a great sense of just how much Solomon loved the Lord and trusted God and wanted to walk in his ways. And it was because of this love for the Lord and the way he followed in David's good example that God made Solomon this amazing offer. Ask for whatever you want and I will give it to you. I mean, it's like Solomon hit the spiritual lottery, right? I mean, that's the jackpot of all things. I mean, what a deal. Can you imagine if God... I mean, who wouldn't among us want to hear God say, Hey, Blake, whatever you want, you ask me for it and it's yours. I mean, that, that would be mind-blowing. And so as I was driving back from New Orleans 
this past week, I thought about that. What would I say? What do I desire most? What would I want to ask of God above all other things? Would I ask God for health and long life? I mean, think about it. You know, like, Lord, you know, just make me healthier. Help me to get in shape and to stay in shape. Help me to live a long time so I can serve you. I, I want to be an active pastor. I want to be pastoring and, and working hard for you as long as I can draw breath. Wouldn't that be a worthy thing to ask God for? Or for financial security. I mean, just think about this, God. If you could just give me, a, I don't know, a cool $10 million then the church wouldn't have to pay me a salary. And I would tithe. And anything the church wanted, I could just cut a check and pay for it. God, isn't that great? I mean, we would always meet our Lottie Moon and Andy Armstrong goals. Isn't that a worthy prayer to ask for? Wouldn't that benefit the kingdom of God? And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I would ask God for success in ministry. You know, for more baptisms. For more people to come to faith in Christ for the pews to be so packed Sunday after Sunday that we either have to add a service or build a new building or both. I mean, would that not be awesome if we just had people pouring out of this church every week, going out into the community, impacting McDuffie County for the Lord? Wouldn't that be a prayer worthy of asking God for? But Solomon didn't ask for any of those things. He didn't ask for health and long life. He didn't ask for financial security. He didn't ask for a successful kingship. He asked for a discerning heart. The discernment of the heart. Now, the first thing Solomon did when he asked God for the discernment of the heart was that he thanked God for His goodness and grace in making him king to succeed David. So he, we see when, when Samuel answers God's question, he begins with gratitude. And then he begins to praise David and, and, and talks about what a faithful uh, servant David was to the Lord, that he was righteous and upright in heart. And then Solomon humbly described himself as only a child. He said, I'm only a little child. I don't know how to carry out my duties. I, 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 you know, it's almost like Solomon was overwhelmed with the responsibility of governing this enormous nation of Israel, these millions of people that belonged to the Lord. And so he asked for a discerning heart by which he could govern the people and distinguish between what is right and wrong, what is good and best, what is true and false. Good answer, right? Right? I mean, he answered the right answer, you know. I mean, if this was multiple choice, he got it. He said, see. It's always see, isn't it, teachers? You always see, it seems like. God obviously thought it was the right answer. But I want us to unpack what exactly it was that Solomon asked for because it isn't what you think. Solomon wasn't asking for intelligence. He wasn't asking for leadership skills. He wasn't even asking for common sense or for some kind of spiritual gift of discernment. Let's break down exactly what Solomon asked for. Let's begin by looking at the word heart. Solomon mentioned heart earlier in his prayer when he was talking about his father's faithful, righteous, and upright heart. Now, the Hebrew word for heart is lavav. And that word lavav comes from the Hebrew root lav, which is the word that means throb. So the Hebrew word for heart literally means da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. It's, it's throb. It's that throbbing sound. 
And so, obviously, they're talking about the part inside of you that pumps blood, right? That physical organ that's making that sound. But in the ancient world, the heart represented so much more than just a blood-pumping organ that we know it as today. It represented the center, the seat of your intellect, your emotions, and your will. It was a comprehensiveness. It represented all of who you are. In fact, a quick word study in the Bible tells us a lot about the human heart. It tells us that the human heart reflects who you are. Your heart reflects who you are. In fact, Proverbs 27, 19 says, As water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. Today we might say, As a mirror reflects your face, so your heart reflects who you are. It's the mirror image of the true essence of who you are. So to know someone's heart was to actually know the person. Secondly, it reflects what matters to you. Not only does it reflect who you are, but it reflects what matters to you. Jesus, you might remember, encouraged His followers to store up their treasures in heaven where thieves can't break in and steal, where moths can't eat it up and rust can't corrupt it, instead of storing your treasures on earth where all of those things can and do happen. And Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, the heart reflects your true priorities. And Jesus wants us to invest more than just in what is temporal. He wants us to invest our lives and ourselves in what is eternal. And so where we focus our energies and our time, where we focus our resources, is a reflection of our hearts, of what really matters to us. Because the heart is so important, so essential to our identity, who we are, to our priorities, what we treasure, the Bible tells us that we have to examine our hearts regularly. The heart must be examined. Look at Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David there in Psalm 139 says, we must examine our hearts. We need to pray and ask God to examine our hearts. Why do we need to examine our hearts? Well, Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we have a heart problem. We have sin-sick hearts. The human heart is naturally bent towards selfishness and towards sinfulness, toward rebellion against its Creator. And for this reason, our hearts are not to be trusted, y'all. Now I know in our culture there is, there, there is a, a saying that we love to tell people, especially around graduation time, we love to tell kids, follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Wherever your heart leads you. I want to tell you that's terrible advice. Our hearts are deceptive. Our hearts are broken. Our hearts are sick with sin. You should doubt your heart. Examine it daily to make sure that it's not leading you astray. See, that was Saul's problem. Back in 1 Samuel 10, 9, it says that when God called Saul as king, God had to change or had to turn Saul's heart. 
And the problem was that Saul's heart kept changing and turning back away from God. Twice, Samuel warned Saul to faithfully serve the Lord with all his heart because he wasn't. And in 1 Samuel 28.5, it gives us the only direct description of Saul's heart. And it says that his heart was filled with terror. Saul was not a man who should listen to and follow his heart. And so God rejected Saul in favor of a man who would be after God's own heart. Someone who would love, serve, and trust God, who would go all in with God, heart and soul. That's what God was looking for. After all, as God would later remind Samuel, the Lord doesn't consider a person's outward appearance because God is looking at, God is examining our hearts. That's what He sees. So the heart must be examined. Secondly, the heart must be guarded. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now that's some powerful words there. Above all else. Above all else, guard your heart. The heart is the wellspring of your life. It is the source from which everything you say and do flows. Now in the ancient world, protecting the source of water, like a spring, was, it was a matter of national security, wasn't it? I mean, if, if an invading army came over and they took over the spring or the source of water and, and, and restricted you from access to the water, what did that mean? It mean death. It meant famine. It meant uh, disease. It meant people would, you know, just could not survive. So whoever controlled the water controlled the people. Today we often hear the phrase, well, this is a matter of national security, right? And maybe today part of the crisis that we face is it doesn't seem like our national security is taken very seriously anymore. I mean, whether that's the, the Secret Service apparently not being able to keep people from ringing the president's bell and hiding behind a bush, you know, Seems to be happening a lot. Or, or, or whether it's the fact that we've got all of these hackers and security breaches that are exposing national secrets to, to whoever wants them. Whether it's the security of our, our nuclear arsenal or the security of our borders. You know, but, but national security is important. Well, I want to challenge us to have a greater urgency about guarding our hearts than we should about the government guarding its most kept secrets. We should run everything that wants into our mind and into our heart, everything from the world, every piece of media, we should run all of that through the filter of spiritual security and guard what we allow into our heart. The heart must be examined, it must be guarded, and lastly, the heart must be nurtured. Jesus told a parable about a tree, about the kind of fruit the tree produces. And he says in Luke 6, 43 and 40 through 45, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings up evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This is why we must guard our hearts. This is why we must nurture our hearts. 
because what our hearts are like is what we are like. It's what we say, it's what we do. In another place, Jesus answered the Pharisees. They were criticizing him because the disciples weren't washing their hands before they ate, as if they were like three years old or something, you know. Here's your sanitizer, you know, just... So they were criticizing Jesus about this. And so Jesus rebuked them. He said, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Just as we should be more concerned about the spiritual security of our heart than we are the national security of our country, so we should be more concerned about our spiritual nourishment than our physical nourishment. So many of us today walk around all concerned about what we're putting into our stomachs. We're counting calories. We're counting carbs. We're concerned about gluten. We want to know, is this you know, non-GMO or GMO? We spend so much time and energy and attention on, pay, on reading ingredient lists and knowing everything that's going into our stomach, yet we give no thought whatsoever about the stuff we let into our mind and our heart. The junk that we allow in through the media, through the things we watch on TV, through the things that we read, through the things that we listen to, we allow just unfettered access to our minds and to our hearts to the world and its messages. We get so concerned about how many steps we've had today or how many miles we've walked today. But are we just as concerned about how much of God's Word we've read today and how much time we've spent in prayer today? Your heart is like a garden. It has to be tended. It has to be nurtured if you want it to be fruitful. And if you're nurturing your heart by guarding it from the junk of the world that pollutes it, and if your heart is feeding on God's Word in times of worship and in prayer, then your heart will be well and it will grow. But if you aren't doing those things, your heart will be sick and it will deceive you and your life will be just as fruitless as Saul's. See, God is looking for people who are pursuing His heart, who are after His own heart. How do you think David became faithful, righteous, and upright in heart? He examined his heart, he guarded his heart, he nurtured his heart. Now let's look at the second word here. What was it Solomon asked for his heart? He asked for a discerning heart. Now that word discerning is the Hebrew word shema. Shema, now you might remember what shema, does anybody know what shema means? Well, it's on the slide if you need to know. It means here. In fact, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is called the Shema, and Jews to this day repeat it several times a day. It's the cornerstone of their faith. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. So the Shema is called that because the first word in it is here, Shema. Now, you may remember when we talked about this a month or so ago that the word Shema here also carries with it this idea of obey. That for the Jewish mind, hearing and obeying were two sides of the same coin. You couldn't do one without doing the other or you didn't really hear in the first place. So when it says Shema here, it doesn't just mean men like the way we hear our wives sometimes. 
in one ear and out the other, right? That's, it's not just sound waves passing through. If you really hear the Word of the Lord, you're receptive to it. You understand it, and therefore you obey it. It's, it's like if you hear your boss, and he gives you some instruction. If you want to keep your job, what do you do? You do what he says. If you're a, a, in sports and you're a player on a team and you hear the play or you hear the instruction from your coach, if you want to win, what do you do? Well, if he's a good coach, you do what he says, right? If you don't want to be benched, you do what he says. If you're a soldier in the army and you really do hear your orders, what do you do? You follow them. You obey them. Let's go back and think about King Saul again. Because King Saul is such a great contrast to David and Solomon. That's why we keep going back to him. Saul kept failing to obey God. Remember that? Remember how God told him to go out there and to attack the Amalekites and kill them all and everything, all their cattle, their livestock, everything? And remember how Saul went to war and he defeated the Amalekites, but he kept the best of the livestock alive? And he kept the king, King Agag, alive? Remember that? And so when Samuel shows up, Saul comes out to him boasting, well, I've followed the Lord's commands. I've done everything that God instructed. And Samuel replies, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I shema, that I hear? And then Saul gets all defensive and he says, well, I, I did everything the Lord said. I obeyed the Lord's commands. And then Samuel asks, why did you not shema the Lord? It's the same word. The same word for hearing the cattle was the same word he used. He's saying, Saul, why didn't you hear and obey the Lord? And Saul comes back and says, but I did hear and obey the Lord. But did he? He may have heard the Lord, but he failed to obey the Lord. What Solomon asks for above all else, above riches and long life, above military power and success, is for a shamaing heart, a heart that listens to the Lord and obeys it. Solomon wanted to have the kind of relationship with God that granted him that divine guidance and direction as he sought to lead God's people. He wanted God to show him what was right and wrong, what was true and false. He wanted God to give direction to his misguided heart. Is this not what we all need? Should this not be the chief prayer of each of our hearts? Now here's the brilliant thing. God not only honored Solomon's humble and wise request for a shamaing heart, but God gave him all the other things on top of that. Look with me again at, uh, at verse uh, 10. So the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, so God said to him, Since you've asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourselves, or for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and, and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, so that's the secret. If I just ask God for a discerning heart, He's going to give me health and wealth and long life and all this great stuff. That's it, David. You've showed us the key to winning that spiritual lottery. Wrong. This is not some magic code. God hasn't showed His hand for all time and eternity. But what God has showed us is a principle. A discerning heart will desire what God desires and will direct us in God's path. 
and that will result in a number of blessings. So we've looked at the, at the desires of Solomon's heart, the discernment of his heart, and finally the directions of his heart. You see, if we're seeking to truly hear God's Word and live it, then He will give us a heart that will direct us down the right paths. It will help us to lead wisely. In verse 11, God says, uh, since you have asked for this and not for long life and all this other stuff, He says, I will give you discernment in administering justice. Now, this word discernment is a different Hebrew word. Okay, so it's not Shema. Rather, this word is the word that means skill. It's what we usually think of when we think of wisdom. Okay, so God says, okay, I'm going to give you a shemaing heart, a heart that's going to hear and obey, but on top of that, I'm also going to give you a heart that can actually distinguish between what is good and best. I'm going to give you a heart that can really make the decision of what's the best course of action to take. I'm going to give you those leadership skills. This is the kind of wisdom we read about in Proverbs where it tells us to, to, to work hard and not be lazy, where it tells us to uh, you know, avoid strong drink and certainly avoid prostitutes, where it tells us to, to find true friends and, and, to, and to praise the woman of noble character. That's the kind of wisdom he's talking about here. It helps Solomon to rule justly and wisely. And when we have hearts that hear and obey God, we will be able to lead others wisely. We'll be able to lead others to faith in Christ. We'll be able to disciple other people to help them to grow in their relationship with Christ. We'll be able to parent better and to teach and to coach better. We'll be able to, to be leaders at work with our employees or our, our fellow workers better. In fact, no believer who is shamaing God, who is hearing and obeying God's Word, should ever be afraid that they won't be able to do what God has asked them to do. If God wants you to teach Sunday school and you have a heart that hears and obeys God, guess what? He will give you the skills and the knowledge you need to teach Sunday school. If God is tapping your heart to work with youth and children in our church, don't be afraid. Don't think, well, I'm not old enough or I don't know kids well enough or I'm not cool enough. Because if God is asking you to do that and you have a heart that wants to hear and obey God, He will enable you to do that. To share your faith with that lost coworker, to disciple someone one on one, to serve this church as a deacon, even to serve in full time Christian ministry. Maybe someone in this room has been wrestling with a call to the mission field or to work in a church setting, and you've just always thought, I can't do that. If you have a discerning heart, God will enable you to do that. And He will help you to live wisely. As well, Look at the ways in which Solomon experienced success and blessing simply by living wisely out of his discerning heart. Remember when I said Solomon didn't discover some secret formula for, for getting health and wealth from God? I said the story reveals a principle instead. And I think that is when we are faithful to hear and obey God's Word, we will live lives that are already blessed by God. In other words, following Jesus is the best possible way to live. Amen? So if you are living the best possible way to live, then there's going to be certain blessings and natural rewards. You know, last week we talked about the natural consequences of sin. Well, there are natural rewards for following Jesus. Now, does that mean that you'll never fall onto hard times? No. Solomon fell onto hard times. Does that mean that you just automatically get whatever whim comes across your mind that you want God to give you? No. And neither did Solomon just get whatever he dreamed up. It simply means that when we are faithful in what God has entrusted to us, He will entrust 
more to us. When we live for others and give to others and, and worship God out of a grateful heart, and when we trust in Him, we will experience the blessings that go with that way of living. Good trees bear good fruit. To put it another way, Jesus said not to worry about what we're going to eat or wear. Rather, He said we should seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Solomon lived a successful life as king, but only so long as he lived faithfully. So to live wisely doesn't just mean that we live successfully, it means we live faithfully. And, and really, that's the key. God tells him there in verse 14 that as long as he walked in the Lord's ways, as long as his heart continued to hear and obey, he would live a long life. A wise heart, in other words, is a faithful Heart. A discerning, obedient heart is a faithful heart. And faithfulness is far greater than success. Let me say that again. Faithfulness is far greater than success. In fact, on the scale of how God rates things, the worldly definition for success is pretty, pretty close to the bottom. But faithfulness is at the top of the list. If you want to truly be successful in the eyes of God, it's not about how the world defines success. It's about being faithful to God. When everything seems to be falling apart, when nobody else understands what you're doing or why you're doing it, when the world mocks and ridicules you, you know, let me just stop for just a second and say, and I don't mean to get political here, this has no bearing on policy matters whatsoever, but the way people are treating Mike Pence, because he doesn't eat with other women alone, who aren't his wife. I don't know if you've seen that, but he's being dragged through the coals for this. I think that is wisdom. I think that is smart. If every politician lived by that, I think we'd be in a very different country today. But even when the world is going to mock and ridicule you for living in the ways of God, you be faithful. And in God's eyes, you'll be successful. You know, I have never flown a plane. Okay, so don't anybody ask, right? I, I mean, you wouldn't want to ride with me, I'm sure. But I, I understand this, that when pilots are learning to fly a plane, one of the first things that's drilled into them is don't trust your instincts, trust your instruments. Because at nighttime or up in a cloud, up can feel down, down can feel up. And if you just go based on feelings... If you think that wisdom comes from experience, you know, learn, you know, live and learn, and you're a pilot, you won't live long enough to learn. Wisdom is in trusting your instruments, not what you think or feel. Well, wise people don't always learn from experience. It's not always about live and learn. Wisdom is about learn and live. That's the way of wisdom. To shema, to hear and obey God's voice is the key to a long and fruitful life. It isn't so much skill and sound judgment as it is trusting in the Word of God and following it with all your heart. That's why Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, unfortunately for Solomon, he didn't maintain that kind of wisdom. Later in life, Solomon lost touch with his relationship with God. He no longer shamed God's Word. And in the end, Solomon really became a very wise fool. His life is a powerful reminder that everything depends on your walk with God. Everything depends on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Having Jesus as the Lord of your life enthroned in your heart is the only way 
to an abundant and eternal life. As our instrumentalists come to lead us in our hymn of response, I just want you to stop and consider your heart. Take a moment and examine your heart. Is Jesus enthroned in your heart? You know, Benny and I were talking before the service about this, and, and he said that, uh, that the longest journey you make is from your head to your heart. A lot of people know things about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Does He sit on the throne of your heart? If He does not, today the wisest choice you can make is to hear the gospel and respond. And I'll be standing down front to help you do just that. Maybe today God is speaking to your heart to join this church. Maybe to surrender to ministry. Maybe you just need to rededicate your life. You, you realize you've been more like Saul than Solomon. And you've not really been hearing and obeying what God says to you. And you want to kind of say, I want to do over. I want to start over as a follower of Jesus and begin to really hear and obey. Whatever God has spoken to you, would you shema as we stand and as we sing?